like you can't be fastidious enough to be in medicine you know that that's that, that's my that's my rule like you you can never know enough about the patient there's always more to be known about the patient welcome back to the neurophilia podcast i am your host nuper goyle in today's episode a talk between the mind and heart we will be discussing the interplay between neurology and cardiology. The term neurocardiology was first coined by Dr. Nadelson in 1985. The heart's effects on the brain have been well established over the past few decades. 15% to one-third of all strokes are caused by cardiac diseases such as atrial fibrillation, CHF, structural heart disease, and endocarditis. In addition, an estimated 6 to 30% of patients that undergo a cardiac procedure will experience perioperative neurological injury. And most significantly, 50 to as high as 80% of cardiac arrest patients will suffer from cognitive impairment because of cerebral hypoxia. More recently, the focus has shifted towards identifying the brain's role in cardiac function. Research performed in animal models suggests that the insula, hypothalamus, and thalamus play a direct role in cardiac function. Various other studies show that an acute stroke or hemorrhage can actually result in EKG changes that persist for days to months on end. For a more in-depth review of the statistics and studies that we mentioned in this podcast, please check out our episode's description for more information. In an article titled Heart-Brain Interactions, Neurocardiology or Cardioneurology Comes of Age, there's a line that reads, the neurologist cannot ignore the heart and the cardiologist must consider the cerebral consequences of cardiac disease. While I think this quote wonderfully summarizes the connections that exist between the mind and heart, it makes it seem like the interplay between neurology and cardiology is more of an obligation rather than an opportunity. The purpose of today's episode is to highlight the positive and mutually beneficial relationship that exists between these two fields of medicine. To help accomplish this, I have with me vascular neurologist, Dr. Blake Boletko, and special guest, Dr. Ankur Kalra. Dr. Ankur Kalra is an interventional cardiologist, medical director, and founder of a nonprofit organization, makeadent.org. He is the host of a fantastic cardiology podcast show called Parallax. Dr. Kalra, welcome to the Neurophilia podcast. Uh, Nupur, uh, thanks for having me. Um, congratulations for your new podcast, and I'm, I'm delighted and excited to be here. Well, we're, we're delighted and excited to have you here as well. And so I don't want to waste another second. I, I really just want to jump into this conversation. And, and as, you know, I discussed earlier, it's been well described, this connection that exists between the brain and the heart and vice versa. Um, and so, you know, one can just naturally assume that neurologists and cardiologists must be well-versed in both areas to be able to properly manage the pathophysiological relationship that exists between these organ systems. Um, and so the first question that I have, Dr. Kalra, um, as an interventional cardiologist, what are the neurological complications that you often consider in your practice? So um, it's an important question that you ask. Um, you know, and it's, it's actually one of the, the most important neurological complications which we get um, 
for lack of a better word, we get judged on is, um, is, is stroke. Um, and I think um, very procedural stroke uh, is an important outcome, not only for, a, not, not only for our patients, it's, it's an important outcome as a quality metric. Um, so, and that is, is garnering more and more attention as we switch, um, you know, from coronary procedures to actually procedures um, addressing heart valve conditions, uh, you know, particularly aortic valve stenosis. Um, and we now have devices which uh, will actually try to mitigate stroke um, as a complication in patients who have, uh, you know, complex valvular disease. Um, but, you know, stroke is, is one of the most important neurological complications that we um, focus on as, as interventional cardiologists. To sort of look at the, the, the other side of the coin, you know, Dr. Baleko, as, as a vascular neurologist who primarily treats those strokes that occur in patients, you know, what are the cardiac complications that you often consider in your practice? Yeah, Nupur, thanks again for for having me, and it's great to get to talk to Anchor for uh, you know this this time that we have here. And um, I, you know, I definitely agree. Um, there is so much interplay between uh, what I do every day and and our cardiology teams. And it's some uh, sometimes I, I feel like I can't go a day without talking to a cardiologist. And so um, I, I would say that aside from stroke, you know, which we could talk about for a whole podcast between uh, the interaction between stroke and cardiology and cardiology and stroke, um, I would say that there are a lot of other considerations, even if we take dysautonomia and, and different autonomic syndromes that can lead to syncope. We have a lot of uh, clinics uh, throughout the country that focus on, on neurocardiogenic causes of syncope, and they work very closely together. We do a lot of medication management. You know, cardiology and neurology are both very uh, much primary care in, in a lot of uh, patients' lives. And so managing similar medications, managing similar comorbidities. Um, and then I would push it one step further to say that there are some systematic diseases that affect both the heart and the brain. And so we're managing um, kind of the end stage diseases that, that didn't even start primarily within the heart um, or the brain. But certainly I know that we're going to talk a lot more about stroke and, and the heart during this podcast. Uh, given uh, the background of both of us. So I'm excited to, to dig into that a little bit more. I mean, if you want to focus on pathologies that we see together, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap in, in disease states that we, we see and we take care of. Um, I think the one that comes to mind, like right off the bat, is, is a patent for Aminavali. Um, and, you know, the, the decision on when to close and when not to close is a really important one. And I do think that you need, um, I mean, right front and center, you need, a good neurologist on board uh, for you to make that decision for, for a patient. And I, I do think that payers also ask for a collaboration between an interventionist and a neurologist when you're making that decision. So, you know, I think off, like that is like numero uno, you know, I would say on the list um, when, I, when I think of a neurology colleague. Um, you know, the other one, certainly the big one is atrial fibrillation, which again, there will be a lot of overlap and common patients, uh, particularly in patients who are at high bleeding risk. Uh, thankfully, with you know direct oral anticoagulants, we've mitigated the risk of intracranial hemorrhage, which is a a, a, a a complication that none of us wants to see. And then you know we can get into dysautonomia. We can also get into broken heart syndrome. You know where you know you have the the central nervous system affecting the the heart. But I'll stop here and let Blake uh, take on from here. Yeah, Nupur, uh, real life examples, um, you know, I uh, am in the hospital quite a lot and I also um, am, in the, am in the clinic quite a lot. And I can tell you 
whenever I, I'm on hospital service, it, it's every day. Um, I interact with a cardiologist on the stroke service every single day. And whether that's co-managing a cardioembolic stroke patient or managing cardiac complications that are due to stroke, again, going back to this stroke heart syndrome that we're talking about uh, a little bit, um, where it's been recently described uh, as, a, as a nice publication uh, just in September of last year, this kind of uh, looking into, again, the, the stroke heart syndrome. And, and I know we talk a lot about and neurologists probably blame uh, the cardiac complications for most of what we do from a stroke standpoint uh, in a large percentage of patients that, that we deem to be cardioembolic. Um, but really, uh, what we haven't focused on in some time is what the, the strokes and what, are, from a brain standpoint, what effects uh, those are having on downstream complications from a heart standpoint. Um, and so it's been really nice to see this kind of uh, re-looked into in, in the recent past. And I would say in the outpatient clinics, um, I, I probably talk to an interventional cardiologist once a week. Um, PFO closure is definitely one of them. Uh, left atrial appendage closure devices would be another big one that, that I, I communicate. And then sometimes it's just medical management, or it's that the patients view both of us as primary physicians in, in their overall care. And they always want to make sure anytime that I uh, broach something to them that their cardiologist is on board with this. And uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful that the patients really own their cardiologist and own their neurologist as as important members of their their team. And so we can do right by patients by making sure that we're communicating together. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you both for for your insight. Um, and I actually wanted to go back to something that doc, Dr. Kara mentioned very briefly, this, this idea of the broken heart syndrome. And, and I feel the need to bring it up because it's something that is obviously widely reported on. And even Dr. Kara, you yourself published this amazing article in JAMA, you know, titled Incidents of Stress Cardiomyopathy During the Coronavirus Disease 2019 Pandemic. Um, and in this article, you sort of talk about the increase in broken heart syndrome um, due to the increased psychological, social, and emotional stressors that the pandemic brought for so many individuals. Um, and, and in reading that article, you know, it, it really inspired me to sort of try to figure out what the brain's role is in, in cardiac dysfunction, especially related to this disease. And, and what I found was pretty startling. When researchers have been looking at sort of the, the coexisting morbidities that patients have, um, a large part of that relates to the brain. As high as 30% of patients that have this broken heart syndrome actually have coexisting psychiatric conditions, and about 7% of them also have coexisting diseases of the nervous system. And so I think everything that has been mentioned thus far is just a, a, just a testament to, to the connection between the brain and the heart and this idea that you really can't treat one organ system without thoughtful consideration of the other. Um, and, and I wanted to move on now. Um, you know, both of you have sort of talked about the necessity of the other profession and being able to do your job well. And so um, I wanted to know from your perspective, what do you define as successful collaboration between providers? It's an interesting question. You know, I think successful collaboration is when um, you can wholeheartedly disagree with one another and yet be respectful of, of one another. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, not, I mean, hopefully for, for the vast majority of, of your patients that you see together, you're on the same page, but, you know, there will be situations that you'll, that you'll encounter in clinical practice where you passionately agree on, on something and you have your own set of data to, to back that decision. And then your colleague from the other specialty uh, would um, be absolutely 
convinced about another alternative pathway of managing the same patient, but in a different, different manner. And you sort of have the insight of disagreeing with that approach, but yet being completely respectful of that decision. And then let, let the patient make the best decision for themselves. Um, that situation occurs not infrequently in clinical practice. If you have attained that level of security and comfort in your own, as well as your colleague, I think that that is a, a, a truly a really good collaboration. Absolutely. What do you think, Blake? I agree with everything that you said. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, if we could call a successful collaboration between the two of us, uh, something that benefits patient care. I think that, that that is all we can ever ask for. I think if a patient uh, it feels comfortable with, with their team, and if uh, what we're trying to do for that patient ultimately um, is enhanced by the interaction between you and I, I think that that's the, all that I could ever ask from a successful collaboration with a colleague of mine. I think that there's always uh, two sides. And again, the, the cardiologists remind us that, uh, that the brain wouldn't do much if the, the heart wasn't pumping blood there. And we try to remind uh, our car- cardiology friends that, uh, you know, uh, from our side of things that, the, again, the heart uh, causes a lot of damage to the brain and uh, that the brain is the essential being of, of who we are in the body. And so I think it's a beautiful interplay between the two of them. And, and so I think communication between, you know, uh, the, the cardiologist and the neurologist, I think is really important. Um, and that collaboration really comes down to, does a patient feel like they're benefiting from having both people involved and is a uniform uh, agreement ultimately made so that it's going to best benefit the patient? Yeah, I, I think philosophically though, right? Like just to, to end this on a philosophical note, um, I do think that all decisions in life should be should be made from the heart, not from the from the brain. Every every single PowerPoint and every single thing that I do, uh, I always put uh, the awkward Yeti brain and heart. If you've seen the comics or the memes, um, and it's it's uh, it portrays. I'll tell you what it portrays the brain in in a way that uh, is very boring and very structured. And uh, I'll tell you what, looking at some of those, I would also go with the heart nine times. <laughs> Don't tell anybody I'm saying this as a neurologist, but uh, I absolutely love uh, those memes and, and I find them absolutely fascinating to really think through. Yeah, I mean, you know, like art comes from the heart, you know, poetry comes from the heart. Um, so many philosophies come from the heart. I mean, you, you certainly use the brain to write them. We can agree that you need both of them to be uh, very well-rounded and, and have a holistic approach. Yep, absolutely. Well, you know, I I absolutely love what you said, Dr. Kalra, about this idea of even in disagreement, being able to truly respect your colleague. Um, and, and so the follow-up question I have to that, because I think oftentimes, you know, for medical students as well as young doctors, you sort of worry about, you know, coming into conflict with consultants when it comes to patient management. And so I wanted to know from your perspectives, how do you go about disagreements when it comes to patient management? For me, uh, what I would do is I would really put myself in my colleagues' shoes uh, in terms of trying to understand where they're coming from. If feasible, uh, read the literature myself and try and garner uh, data points which they're referring to and, and truly try to understand their perspective. And that way that weigh that perspective against mine um, and then you know try to decide what I would do if I were the patient. You know that's how that's how I think of things. Um, and, you know, at the end, like I said before, you know, even if you still disagree, you know, just being 
absolutely respectful of, of the colleague because you know uh, um, that disagreement is is only uh, on one data point, but that disagreement is not is not personal. So you know, being uh, being respectful of who they are as as a person and as a physician, I think is truly truly important. And you know, that comes from the heart. You know, like that is genuine. So if it's genuine, um, that should not be supplanted by you know what you think about a particular patient in a particular clinical scenario. I think that's beautifully said. Uh, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And you know, you can take a different spin on this and and say that sometimes disagreement leads to advances in our fields and advances in the questions that we're trying to ask. And so I think whenever there is this discrepancy, it makes us question, well, where's the gap in in literature? Where's the gap in evidence-based medicine? And oftentimes what that does is that brings us closer together because then we collaborate and we say, how can we address this? Because this is a common theme. We don't have concrete answers between the two of us. How can we come together and, and make this better for our patients? And I think at the end of the day, that's that's our responsibility is to our patients to put all the information in front of our patients as we can and help guide them into a decision that ultimately they're making. Um, I think it's really important to allow our patients to have as much autonomy and understanding of what's happening for their own medical care as possible. And I think as long as we are picking up the phone and we're calling each other and we're emailing each other and we're messaging, messaging each other, um, really, I, I haven't had too many conflicts that weren't pretty quickly resolved because ultimately, when it comes back to being very patient-centered, we all want the same thing. And that's something that we can always agree on and something that should always be a focus of what we're doing. Yeah, you know, like in, I, I always, a good allegory here is like in the, uh, you know, the coagulation cascade, there is a final, final common pathway. So, you know, our final common pathway is excellent patient care and evidence-based patient care. So I think um, as long as we, you know, you and your colleague are, are shared the final common pathway, I think, you know, all disagreements find, find a home. Um, and, you know, I mean, disagreements have led to new questions and new questions lead to new information. And that's how we garner new knowledge and advance the field. So, you know, I think as a, as a researcher, uh, that's fertile ground for new ideas. Uh, so, you know, always welcome disagreements in clinical medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it goes back to that idea of it being, you know, part of the art of medicine, how mm-hmm. you're able to respectfully disagree in the name of patient outcomes. And I, I think the way that you guys both put that was just beautiful, this idea of it being a fertile opportunity. And it's all about the way that you view things, right? You can see it as a conflict. You can see it as an issue, a hurdle that you have to overcome, but you can also see it as a beautiful opportunity to advance the field of medicine. So, so to sort of shift gears, you know, Dr. Kalra, the, the focus of our first season of neurophilia is this idea of neurophobia. Um, you know, the fear of neurology that exists not only in neurology, but also specifically in other fields of medicine. And so, you know, something that I wanted to ask you was being an interventional cardiologist, have you experienced neurophobia? Um, I have. Um, I think whenever you have an unresponsive patient on the table, um, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. I mean, I mean, the first thing that comes to the mind is, you know, did a, did a flick black, which went, um, you know, upstream and, and caused uh, a disabling stroke. The, the one thing which really, really scares us as interventionists is, you know, change in mental status on the table. That's, that's not a good day for us in the lab. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, the answer is yes. Um, and, you know, then, 
the, the very first thing that we do is, you know, code stroke, you know, just call, just call our colleagues and have them evaluate the patient. I am completely fine looking stupid. I have no problem looking stupid. My ego is at the door as soon as I enter the lab. More often than not, uh, you know, actually it's just sedation, um, you know, that ends up being the, the culprit for why there was a change in neurological status. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, again, um, whenever, whenever in doubt, you know, just call your colleague and, you know, make sure everything is okay. That's, that's what I do. Uh, so the answer is yes, I am neurophobic. <laughs> well, you know, and, and it's important to be able to recognize that. And, and I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability. One of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to steal your, your host uh, role for a minute, but I have a, a question that I was hoping to ask uh, Ankur, and that's, um, you know, has your view of that moment changed over time? As, as we have advanced uh, the field of neurology, as we can now do more than what we could do from an interventional neurology standpoint, um, and we can take a patient with an LVO from your table to our table and, and recanalize an intracranial vessel, um, have you been uh, have you been swayed at all of the advances from a neurology standpoint and a stroke standpoint? And do you have any more? Uh, is it still as neurophobic to you when you have those as what it was maybe five or ten years ago? Or has your uh, your view on on those instances changed over time? Like I I think um, when it happens, um, I think that the first one or two minutes are are still very chaotic for me. Um, because you know, in terms of a proceduralist, I'm just I'm just going over the steps that I took until we got there. So and trying to identify you know what lacuna may have occurred that we are here. So you know I'm running over the algorithms of how much sedation was given. Um, you know when was the patient last responsive? What catheters did I use? Which vessel I crossed? What did I do from a procedural standpoint? So I am actually running my checklist as you guys are running down or up the staircase to come to the patient. That's what I'm doing. Um, so the, the initial one, two minutes are still very chaotic for me and very uncomfortable for me. But I, I, you know, I think, God forbid, if we do identify that there is, there is a stroke, uh, I agree with you. I mean, I have gotten very comfortable in the advances that neurology has made, particularly interventional neurology in terms of your ability. And this has happened to me you know, with, with one of my patients like the patient was whisked away to the neurology lab within minutes uh, from the cath lab to the neurology lab. And within a matter of 30 minutes, we actually had a diagnosis and we had, um, you know, the lesion taken care of from, a, from an interventional neurologist. But, you know, patients have, have completely recovered neurologically and have done well and have been discharged to be brought back um, in, in perfect health. Um, so, you know, as... Uh, anxiety-inducing and as nerve-wracking and as uh, adrenaline-generating as that episode is. And the initial, you know, like I said, a couple of minutes are still that for me even now. Um, I, I do have a lot of uh, faith and, and solace in, in the advances that have occurred since uh, because, you know, I think that the patient is really, I mean, is, is the recipient of cutting-edge care uh, that is delivered because of this collaboration. So thank you for do what you do. To your point too, I mean, that initial meeting, you going through that checklist in your mind um, while we're running uh, your way, um, I can't tell you how important it is 
for us to get that information from you in real time. I mean, that drives every single thing that we're going to do for that patient from that point on from our standpoint. So I can tell you, we're talking about communication amongst cardiologists and neurologists. And in that acute moment, um, I can't tell you how important it is to have that very, very, very imperative information um, in your checklist that you just went over. You just reiterate that back to us. And all of a sudden that allows us to move forward with that patient in a way that we're not digging through the chart. We're not digging for information. We're not guessing as to what, what might have happened. Um, and so I think you really want to see collaboration. Um, it might feel like a we're going to take this patient, do a quick handoff, but that handoff that might only take a couple minutes and that checklist that you just went over, that changes everything for the patient, that changes everything for our timing. Um, and we can't thank you all enough. I think that it goes both ways. And that information that we get, even if it's chaotic and hectic, it always seems a little bit more prepared uh, to, to us than that. And we all know that you are all very, very uh, good at what you do. And so we really respect that and we use that. And I think together, that's what ultimately leads to better outcomes for our patients. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I would like to add one more point here. And that is, I mean, you can never know enough about your patient, you know, is what I was taught by my mentor. So, you know, know as much as you can, you know, whether it's past medical history, uh, which, you know, of course is relevant to what you're going to do from a procedure standpoint. But also I think, you know, in terms of when you're running through the checklist, I want to make sure that I'm prepared so that when my neurology colleague is here, they're not wasting time running through what we just did. I mean, they should have every intricate, minute detail. Um, and I think that just comes, I think in part that just comes in being detail-oriented, um, you know, or being fastidious, uh, which, which I think is, you can't be, like, you can't be fastidious enough to be in medicine. You know, that, that's, that, that's, my, that's my rule. Like, you, you can never know enough about the patient. There's always more to be known about the patient. For everyone who's listening to this podcast, pause it, rewind, re-listen to that. Uh, I, if, if everybody could keep that in mind, um, from I'm speaking from a pure stroke and neurology standpoint, um, how great would it be if everybody had that approach whenever we met them with an acute situation like that? So thank you so much for that. I thought that was, that was really great. I hope everyone was paying attention. You know, the second part of what we try to do on this, you know, on this podcast, on this platform is find ways to help combat neurophobia, right? We want to find a way to eradicate it, not only in medical students, resident doctors, but also attending physicians um, who have been practicing for a long time. And so, you know, the question that I have for both you as well as Dr. Boletko, how can neurologists do a better job of connecting neurology to other fields of medicine and, and working to dispel neurophobia? I mean, you know, first of all, I think neurologists are, are crazy smart people because um, um, a lot still depends on on clinical acumen and clinical training. I'm not trying to take anything away from any other specialties, but I mean, I think, you know, particularly with, you know, cardiology, everything has become so objective and image-based. I mean, we talk about having lost the skill of the physical exam. Um, you know, for example, identifying valve lesions by just like my father, for example, can tell you the grade of aortic stenosis severity just by auscultating. He does not even echo. I can't do that. So there has been this attrition in in physical exam skills. If I were to think, if I were to think of two specialties who examine the patient the most comprehensive fashion, I think it has to be neurologies on top. And the fact that you can come up with a differential of where the lesion is going to be before you take the patient to imaging is still a skill set which has uh, been has not attritioned over time. Um, so I think that is 
I mean, that to me is very, that to me is very attractive. Uh, I, I feel very stupid in front of a neurologist uh, when, you're, when you're in your differential coming up with where the lesion is going to be. And it's like, that's pretty attractive. You know, why can't I do that? Um, you know, so if, and I was like, you know, I, and, and then I actually have, have tried to go back and look at the homunculus, you know, that the, the popular homunculus diagram from medical school. And it's like, you know what? I'm, I'm way too far out into cardiology. I'll just leave that to the neurologist. If you can educate the, your colleagues about the, the big things to worry about, you know, in terms of lesions and, you know, telltale signs of some of the most common lesions you see on a day-to-day -day basis, I think that would be very helpful. Uh, you know, for all of us. Um, I mean, the other thing that you can do is start in, in like not wearing bow ties because they're very intimidating. You know, like, like you know, a bow tie with a with a white coat. You know that person's going to be a neurologist, <laughs> and it's so intimidating. I mean, it's it's like, and then the only the only thing you you need is uh, is those round glasses, you know, and that's it. <laughs> then then, then I, I start thinking about my time in Boston. Um, but you know, that's it for me. I, mean, I think that's the that's the answer that I would give to that question. Ankur, I don't wear bow ties or glasses, but you have me wanting to do both of those. Now. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to dispel this this vision of neurologist, and here you are just putting it up on a pedestal. And now I feel bad that I, I don't wear bow ties and, and I don't wear glasses, but I have several colleagues who do. So uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Um, and, and, and Dr. Kalra, just to, just to echo what Dr. Boletko said, um, you know, I think education is such a phenomenal answer in it. And it reminds me of this quote that, you know, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time from Nelson Mandela. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar. Um, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. I think a large part of, of, progressing this sort of collaboration um, and mutual respect in these fields is vulnerability and being able to lower your guard and and say what scares you about a field that you often have to interact with. So I really appreciate your vulnerability and I really appreciate you taking the time um, to, to get educated, but also to educate us in the process. And it goes both ways. I mean, as a stroke neurologist, um, I have to preface by saying that we understand that the heart is basically just a pump with some electricity. So it's much easier to figure out than the complex brain, right? Um, but with that being said, we uh, poach a lot of cardiac literature and we extrapolate a lot from what you all have done and the advances that have been made in, in the cardiac literature a lot for cerebrovascular disease. And so we wouldn't have made the advances that we've made in stroke care, I truly believe, without the cardiologist being ahead of us. And um, I say that in a, in a very complimentary way, and we very much appreciate everything that you all do to advance your own field because uh, we all benefit from that. And, and ultimately, uh, that means that all of our patients benefit from that. So I see this every single day, and I talk to all of our trainees every day about, hey, where did you get that evidence-based medicine, Dr. Blecker? And I say, well, <laughs> don't tell anybody, but this came from cardiology, and we're just kind of extrapolating it, but give us 20 years, and maybe we'll have the same thing in stroke. So we joke about it all the time, but I mean, what you all have done in cardiology has really allowed us to advance our own field, and, and I think the collaboration is really great. Yeah, no, I think the, I mean, cardiology has truly been at the forefront of evidence-based medicine. And, um, I think in part that is also true because of the, the, the sheer burden of disease, right? Uh, so it's not as hard to find patients or to enroll patients in, in answering all the questions that you encounter on the bedside or clinically. 
Um, the the one thing about um, and you know by the way I mean cardiology and the heart is like I only I, the analogy that I give is like think of the heart like a house so you have plumbing you have electricity you have bricks and you have doors so plumbing is the coronaries electricity is EP so the conduction cardiac conduction system the bricks are the the heart muscle and the doors are the valves and it's just an interplay of these four four things. And that's it. That's that's all cardiology is. I mean, that that's what I tell patients, um, and even you know medical students or, or, or residents. And certainly, the brain is a lot more complex than that. It's not as as simple than it's not as simple uh, as the heart. Um, you know, but I think the, the 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 two aspects of cardiology where we have led, I think medicine in general is one, our ability to garner data using RCTs, and you know also our Truthfulness in terms of reporting our own outcomes, I think, which you know, I think is is putting us, uh, you know, at a vulnerable sta stage. But then also making ourselves very accountable of the the quality of care that we are delivering. I think I think cardiology has truly led you know medicine in those aspects. And if if other specialties can you know extrapolate or emulate, I'm sure it's going to be the best for our patients. Absolutely. Well. Doctors Kara and Valetko, it has been such an honor and a pleasure talking with you both today about this relationship, this beautiful relationship um, that does exist between neurology and cardiology. So thank you for your time. Um, and, and before we wrap up our conversation, um, I want to ask you, Dr. Kara, um, about your no-brainers. And, and these are going to be five rapid-fire questions that you can respond to with one word or one sentence maximum. So are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. You're ready to go. Got your bow tie on and everything. Um, first question, what are you most looking forward to in 2023? Um, my novel that I'll be finishing and making it ready for publication in 2024. What is it going to be called? It's called Pralaya. Um, so Pralaya is a Hindi word for the great dissolution. And it's inspired by the Bhagavad Gita. It's a love story um, set amidst war. Um, in 286 BC. And if you guys are looking for another great book by Dr. Kalra, make sure you check out Ibada. It's it's a great read. I, I own it myself. Oh, okay. So the second question that I have, um, what is the greatest piece of advice you have received in medical training? Um, the first one I already shared, right? You cannot know enough about the patient. Um, and the second is never say never. What is the best part of your job? My ability to connect with my patients emotionally when they are at their most vulnerable. I feel it's a privilege which is rare and is the best part of my job. Beautifully put. How would you describe the field of neurology? Um, it's a cognitive superpower. That's mm -hmm. how I think of it. Last question that I have for you, Dr. Kalra. What do you enjoy the most about neurology? Um, the ability to uh, based on purely based on clinical exam to mathematically derive the lesion blows my mind every single every single time um, and that's what I like the most but that's what I, I I'm not an enviable or a jealous person so I get inspired uh, that's what inspires me the most about a neurologist yeah well 
Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kalra, as well as Dr. Valetko. Um, and, and if you guys are looking for a truly excellent medical podcast, please check out Parallax by Dr. Ankar Kalra. He does a phenomenal job with it. Um, and so, so in this episode, we have discussed the history of neurocardiology, defined the different ways that the minds and hearts interact, and had a phenomenal conversation about the interplay between neurology and cardiology. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. Make sure you follow us on social media at NeurophiliaPod for updates on future episodes. Our next episode will feature dermatologist Dr. Elliot Mosto as we discuss the relationship between neurology and dermatology. See you next time.